3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning and you're here on our Wednesday Radio Breakfast. The date is the 12th of the 9th and um, I'm excited because it's September and September's my favourite month. Happy (laughs) September everyone. I've been told multiple times that it's Virgo season. You know what that means? All those people want me to know that it's going to be their birthdays soon. (laughs) (laughs) That's what horoscopes are. They're just a fancy way of people reminding you to get them a present. Just like, um, by the way, I'm a a Virgo. (laughs) Oh yeah, oh yeah, you don't say. (laughs) Wow, yeah. Great, that's so yeah, fantastic. Well, no, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying um the weather slowly getting better. Slowly. Mm. It's and, like and I love it because being you know, having grown up in Canada, yeah. it's mm. the time of the red the leaves change to red. And it mm. also has a kind of invigorating feeling in the air yeah. after the, the summer. So yeah, I'm sorry. yeah, you like it too, you love it yeah, too. Yeah, no, it's actually um looking at the weather port is gonna be seventeen to seven, Ooh. kind of a low seven, but seventeen high. Yeah. It's yep, a bit yep. humid today too, so oh. I, I don't know. How do you prepare for humidity? Uh don't go outside. <laughs> um yeah, just ba- well, I function only really between like twenty degrees and twenty three degrees. Anything too high and I start complaining, and anything too low I start complaining. So um, oh, it's no. too cold today, and yesterday was too hot. Too Actually, hot. no, yesterday yeah, was perfect. It was beautiful. Yesterday, we went out yeah. all, all layered up, as mm. you did, I think, last week, I was. And was slowly, you slowly <laughs> hung in it. Yeah. Anyway, it was delightful, just yeah. feeling that warmth. It was beautiful. It was, it was actually nice. Yeah. yeah. And, um, well, I guess, did you get up to anything interesting over the weekend? I went to see Chelsea Manning hey. on Ooh. Friday night. Uh, How was that? It was incredible. I mean, of mm. course, she wasn't allowed into Australia, so what we had was a, a huge screen with, you know, really her head and shoulders. So I, we got, um, you know, we got to see her facial expressions much more than we would have yeah. uh, had, had she And been, she, was, uh, she was beaming in from New Zealand, is that right? From New Zealand, that's right. right. And um, I think a couple of things really struck me, but one was just her absolute humanity and her humility. Mm. I mean, she absolutely refused to, to accept that she'd done anything brave or anything that anyone else wouldn't have done, you know, and mm. that was pretty amazing. And then I think very vivid, her descriptions of being in solitary confinement, I think she said oh, that, God, 11 yeah. months. Wow. And how one survives. How long was she in prison? About in seven years. Seven years. And so then wow. about also what happens in prison, and uh, she spoke about the, that, uh, the way the, the prisoners helped each other and supported each other and Mm. the main violence was actually coming from the guards in her Mm. situation Mm. and things like how you know you were dependent on things like very basic things like toilet paper becomes Mm. you know really important or Mm. toothbrush or things like that and if someone didn't have those things they they started to hide which they would have been in big trouble if they'd been found out things like toilet spare toilet paper for someone Mm. who might have run out things like that so I found that quite incredible. And then also, of course, some of the things that she said about data. And one thing that stood out for me was um, that uh, we all have a right to encryption of our data. Our data shouldn't be available. So that was hmm. interesting. And um, 
and finally I, I felt, I realized quite strongly she's only been out of prison a little over a year. Hmm. And in prison it's a very, you know, confined environment, very hmm. structured. And all of a sudden she comes out seven years later into a world that's it's very different. And also has then to kind of make her way. And I felt that uh, it was amazing that she was doing these talking tours and things like that in some ways. I think it's because we could see her face so so closely mm. and the feelings going through. I thought it was huge that she'd taken on that kind of public appearance after, you know, only less than, much less than a year. And I think she said, you know, she thought she'd come out and it'd be all quiet and... And then all of a sudden, she's very much in the media eye. So anyway, um, yeah. And the other thing that was interesting was that the people who asked questions, all different backgrounds. And I think particularly for people who'd come from oppressive societies or situations, there was one person who asked a question. He was from Afghanistan, for example. And, and the real respect for her that came through in those questions. I thought, yeah. Anyway, so that's, yeah. that's a long thing, but it was quite a powerful experience. Yeah, it's making me really regret not being able to go. But um, I, I remember hearing from her on Monday breakfast. They yes, did a really great right. um, press conference. It was a phone ca- press conference. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to make it in Australia, obviously. Yes. But um, really great questions put to her by a variety of different people, including 3CR in, um, in the form of Monday breakfast. So right. listen back to that, folks, if you're interested uh, yeah. in Hearing. I do yeah. plan to do that. Yeah. Not sure if there's a recording of the event that happened. I'm sure there would have been, but mm. I'm not sure where to where to right, get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'd have to hunt that down. We'll find out more for you folks. Yeah, <laughs> no, maybe we'll stick that on our um, today's podcast. Oh, hmm, well, no, if that, yeah. only if it's available. But yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I on Friday saw the worst play I've ever seen. Oh. I won't name it because I don't <laughs> love don't doing it. that. No. No, no, it was a revival from a play back in 1993, but it was just really gratuitously grotesque oh and, that's a shame yeah and it just sort of really sort of uh, this isn't like a very political a very mm-hmm. interesting political point or anything but just like how bad writing can produce bad acting yeah, yeah. well i guess you have flat words and you're going to not be able to you know lift them off the page no, in your acting no no no, no absolutely not, and yeah. so that was just a just a in- interesting little thing and it sort of made me realize how lucky i am to live um on on this country where they've got such creativity and art and beautiful storytelling oh, sure. how like for once I can go wow that, that's what a bad play is like <laughs> it's the yeah. first time I've been to see one in ages but yeah well I mean it's good to go mm. and it's good to you know see well yeah I mean this is what I think works in theatre mm. <laughs> this wasn't mm. what doesn't work so mm. well Fringe is coming up yes, yes. yes. so many great things coming up I'm looking forward to seeing Not Normal oh. I think that's what it's called which is a sort of yep. panel slash performance by a whole lot of um uh Women, disabled women of various um, backgrounds and life experiences, talking about disability and talking about their experiences being women in um, in this society, and it's um, it sounds really exciting. Yeah, very looking forward to to booking tickets for that. Um, yes. But yeah, yeah, no, that does that does actually look really fun. And Fringe Festival just looks great. It's mm. actually on from the thirteenth to the thirtieth of September. The Fringe Festival, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's going to be yeah, making mm. September even more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Fringe festivals are always yeah. great and often so experimental, mm. and you get to mm. see some cutting edge stuff, stuff. ideas. Yeah. yeah, well, there's definitely an institution, the Fringe Festival. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be able to speak to some of the creators in the future. What do we have coming up on the show? Yeah, well, coming up on the show, we're actually going to have uh, first off an interview uh, with the um, Anthony from the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group and he's actually going to be talking about um, Australia's recent almost mining grab in North Ecuador mm. and kind of the yeah the, the introduction of a lot of Australian mining companies and what that means for the Ecuadorian environment. 
Uh, later on the show, though, we have a few other. A few yeah, other well, views. following that, we're going to be hearing from Amanda Thomas, who's going to be talking about environmental demo- democracy. And she's in, I spoke to her in, in New Zealand, but that was uh, earlier in the year. So there uh, have been a few changes since then, which I'll bring you up to date on. But, uh, yeah, the kind of work activists are doing in New Zealand. Yeah, um, we've also got uh, yesterday's news this week, which will be talking about uh, Pussy Riot's uh, recent imprisonment in mm-hmm. Russia. And kind of that's going around with that. And then I think we're having an interview with Dena, Dennis oh, Muller. Dennis Muller, yeah, yeah, who's a senior research fellow in the Centre for Advancing Journalism. And uh, he did a story on the proposed nine Fairfax merger that he described as a disaster for quality media. So we're going to hear from him <laughs> about that. That will be coming up at eight. Yeah. Yeah, but, and if oh, we yeah. have time at the end of the show, we might hear from Jan Bartlett speaking to Jacob Grech who um, talks to us about uh, the relationship between Australian universities and uh, military militarism, Australian militarism this in general. Is a, this but also is a huge issue. It really and, uh, is. Last yes. week yeah. we talked about the ICANN, the Nobel Peace Pride, mm. and mm. one thing I did, wasn't able to fit in because there were so many talks on the, on the day of the send-off was Lucy Turton, who's uh, working on the disarm for disarming universities and university investment in the arms industry. So, yeah, this is, this is very topical and something for us to keep our eye on. Absolutely. Yeah, but for now we're going to go into um, our alternative news segment. So we'll be back in a moment. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real So last week, uh, Tim Jones from Latrobe joined us to talk about the history of Pentecostalism and uh, fascinating to, to find out more about that. And it's, of course, the religion of the new Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. And um, he, and uh, Tim was talking about whether and we just began to speculate at the end of that interview with Tim, uh, speculate um, about what how his religious Scott Morrison's religious beliefs might inform his policy decisions. I don't want to make too many big claims here, but, uh, mm. you know, um, uh, is it likely? So, um, of course, <laughs> anyway, over the weekend, we had an indication of that when um, the age reported that the prime minister had announced he would change laws to protect religious freedom. But what does the prime minister mean when he talks about religious freedom? And one of the accompanying cartoon, I thought, was quite telling. It has uh, Scott Morrison uh, saying, I want laws that would protect Jesus from being forced to supply gay couples with loaves and fishes. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Anyway, um, I'm feeling that, the, and, and others are feeling that this um, response from Scott Morrison to look at religious freedoms has come out of the Religious Freedom Review. Mm. And that review was probably the third or fourth in the last few years. And it was announced just as the laws were going through on, uh, on marriage equality right. and so in December. So in February, we spoke to Jamie Gardner from Liberty Victoria, 
uh, and he's one of the vice presidents of Liberty Victoria, about that religious inquiry and uh, that was set up by Turnbull. He said that he felt it really was a sop to the extreme right of the party, so a wink and a nod to say, yes, just let the legislation about marriage equality go through and I'll give you another bite of the cherry, an inquiry into religious freedom led by an mm. arch-conservative um, and Philip Ruddick. So the second, so that was one of the things that Jamie Gardner um, said when I asked him about the implications of the inquiry into religious freedom. And then the second thing he said was, he talked about was actually the meaning of religious freedom. The second limb of the origins of this religious freedom inquiry is the American distortion of the First Amendment talking about religious freedoms as a device for undermining civil rights more generally. That comes to Australia through American evangelism, through the mass churches, and through a non-church, but a self-styled Christian lobby, which has been extremely powerful, very media savvy, although clearly they completely misunderstood the Australian electorate in thinking that they were going to defeat public view, which has been there for a long time, that marriage equality was right. Freedom of religion in our tradition, similar to the international, is a freedom of of equality. Equal treatment of religions, no preference for religions, no preferences by the state between religions or between religions and non-religions. So secular alternatives to religion, secular ways of being, are included in the freedom of religion on an equal par. All that is the Australian tradition of freedom of religion. And that's the way the Australian Law Reform Commission dealt with it when tasked with examining a whole range of so-called traditional rights and freedoms. I say so-called because freedom of religion is actually relatively new in the English-speaking world. And using the term religious freedoms is a trap. It's a framing trap, which they have very successfully sold to the media. Um, Is it a kind of um, 1984-style newspeak? Well, it is actually. Religious freedoms is actually code for religious privilege, of which they want more. They have too much religious privilege, and they want more. Freedom of religion is about equality. It's about treating all religions and people without religion on an equal par, about the state, in this case the Commonwealth of Australia, not giving preferences to one set of beliefs over another. What are the religious privileges that Liberty Victoria would like to see curtailed? Well, the first one is uh, the privilege not to pay tax. The notion that, inverted commas, that putting it in quotes, advancing religion, end of quote, is an inherently charitable purpose. Freedom not to pay taxes is one that should be abolished. A very important one, and the people who instigated this review wanted to go the other way, the freedom to discriminate on various attributes, in some, in some states all attributes apart from race, is um, another one that is a privilege which is absolutely unjustifiable. Freedom to discriminate in employment, in education, in the provision of goods and services, the provision of accommodation. The freedom to discriminate is the one that the American right wing are very keen on and that was one that was imported under this rubric of religious freedoms. We believe, Liberty believes, I believe very strongly and have done so for a long time that the exemptions from 
the Sex Discrimination Act and from the various state and territory equal opportunity acts, anti-discrimination acts. Those exemptions for uh, religious bodies are completely unprincipled and improper and should be removed. Okay, so that was Jamie Gardner from Liberty Australia, and he's um, talking about what um, religious freedom uh, could look like under the review that the, or not the review, but uh, the ideas that the Prime Minister might be wanting to bring in under the idea of religious freedom, like what might he be, what might he have in mind, and is it to enshrine the right of certain religions to discriminate? And so that's something for us both to watch and, and also to be concerned about. But another aspect of the whole religious freedom debate is the claims by some Christian right groups in Australia that they need protection from persecution. Uh, Robin Whitaker is a Bromby Senior Lecturer in Biblical Studies um, at the University of Divinity, and she totally disagrees that uh, Christians in Australia are persecuted. And she wrote an article about that in the conversation in late May this year. And she points out, first of all, that Christians in Australia have the freedom to gather and worship freely, to meet in public places, to join the army, to teach, to vote, and to be prime minister. That was in May before we had <laughs> the latest developments. And that they own and run vast institutions. They're still the largest religious affiliation in the country at 52% in the 2016 census. And um, as she says, these are hardly signs of a persecuted group. And she goes on to say that the claim of persecution, persecution is not only historically inaccurate, it's offensive in at least two different ways. One is, first of all, there are Christians, and not only Christians, but people of all religions, who actually are persecuted for their religious beliefs in other parts of the world. Coptic Christians who were gunned down, I think, last year around Christmas while at church, uh, North Korea, where it's considered hostile to the state and often results in forced labor camps. Um, Afghanistan, Somalia, pa- parts of Sudan, Libya, Pakistan, and simply owning a Bible in some parts of the world is a liability. So she feels it's insulting to those people and, and inaccurate. And uh, she does point out also that um, the claims of persecution of, by Christians here in Australia uh, is it may be because it's expressing their opinions against same-sex marriage, and she does have, you know, say that of course some people may have experienced social hostility or verbal abuse um, for their minority view in light of changes to the Mar- Marriage Act. But most of these examples occurred you know, during the, the debates that were going on then, and while they're unfortunate. They're nothing like the kind of violence, both real and psychological, that LGBTIQ people have suffered at the hands of Christians. And she goes on to say the Christian church has a terrible track record towards LGBTIQ people. Hate speech, abusive conversion therapies, and they've been used by Christians against that community. Churches that, even those churches that consider themselves moderate, cannot underestimate the effect on someone's mental health of subtly yet consistently being told there's something wrong with them for their sexuality. And yes, yet that's what many churches have either actively preached or communicated in non-verbal ways. So she suggests that confusing persecution with marginalization or disagreement is insulting to the thousands around the world who face actual daily persecution 
for the religion or ethnicity and insulting to the men, women and children who have been hurt by the church because of their sexuality or gender. So when Scott Morrison says he's going to change the laws on religious freedom, I come back to my first question, what does he mean? Who is he going to listen to? And of course, he doesn't have a lot of time. Mm. He doesn't have, so he, if this really is important to him, if he really wants to push this, he'll be pushing it fairly quickly. And it was interesting, it was one of the first things that, that he said that it was mentioned in the report on the entry of the age. So I guess two things. One, if, if people would like to hear all of Jamie Gardner from Liberty Victoria's interview, um, it was rebroadcasted at Wednesday breakfast on the 21st of February. So you could go back and, and look at it, um, the podcast. And Robin Whitaker's article in the conversation was published, around, I think, on the 30th, 30th of May, 31st of May. So uh, that's also really worth a look. And also she writes regularly and always really interesting commentary. Now, you did mention that Scott Morrison doesn't have very much time to enact his agenda regarding sort of socially engineering Australia, and he has wasted very little time, really. Um, uh, Recently, coming out with statements um, saying that he wouldn't want to get involved in outlawing gay conversion therapy, which has been widely regarded as essentially torture, um, gay conversion therapy or um, queer conversion therapy in general. Um, and Scott Morrison has decided that, quote, it's not an issue for me and I'm not planning to get involved, engaged in the issue, end quote, and um, has also accused um, the training of teachers to become aware of, um, of transgender students and that training in itself uh, of creating, quote, gender whisperers, end quote, and um, saying that kids should just be left to be kids. And um, it's sort of fairly worrying um, signalling from, from our Prime Minister and at the same time, um, a motion passed in the um, in the Australian Senate um, to uh, condemn conversion therapy, which is promising. That being said, it is just a uh, just a statement conven- um, condemning um, conversion therapy, and um, in in that capacity. So, so this has just happened. Mm, mm, yes, uh, it was. Uh, I'm reading an article um, published yesterday by Gay Star News, um, yes. and it was a motion raised by uh, Janet Rice of the Australian Greens um, uh-huh. condemning. Uh, conversion therapy and calling on the government to um, to tackle conversion therapy yeah. is something that we should generally be outlawing mm-hmm. in Australia, and so um, so that's pro- it's promising that it wasn't black- blocked in the Senate and that the Liberal Party didn't stand to oppose it, even though they say that it, um, that conversion therapy is something that should be re- regulated by the states. Uh, which is often just... Well, religious yeah. freedom is also something that is uh, part of state responsibility, mm. interestingly. Mm. So we have a couple of different events going mm. on. Uh, yeah, 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 and I, I think also with Scott Morrison, um, he's been rebranding himself under Malcolm Turnbull, but this mm. is a guy like he was against safe schools. I think at one point he came out saying, I moved my daughters to a private school so they don't have to deal with the imposed mm, yeah. values mm, of others. Mm. I mean, he said from the start, yeah. and when he was not in such a great position of power or accountability, that he's so against, you know, these sorts of, these sorts of things. Just and basically so education basically is what he's education, against. Basically yeah. yeah, and oh. tolerance. Mm. So he's made that very clear, and I think, you know, listen to what he's saying, because he's saying very much... He's telling us who he is, so where he's gonna, Yeah, and where he's going to direct Australia. Mm. Anyway, we're going to go into an interview in a minute, but uh, first we're going to hear some community announcements. This is Jazz Party, and you're listening to 3CR. Estás sintonizando 3CR 855 de tu dial AM. Se doy amor a Radio 3CR 855 AM. 
Kính thưa quý vị, đây là đài phát thanh TCR trên làn sóng AM 855. Kính mời quý vị đón nghe. Subscribe to your award-winning multilingual community radio station. 3CR and help keep these voices on the airwaves. Call the station on 94198377. The number is again 94198377. the change revolutionary hip-hop theater join us for an interactive performance taking audience on an epic journey through the collingwood estate underground car park transformed into many worlds for you to explore 6:30 p.m thursday the 13th and friday the 14th of september and 3 p.m saturday 15th of september tickets on the fringe festival website are on the door free for collingwood housing estate residents no one turned away Hey, all you mob, be a part of the change. This ain't a pill to will, as in to apathy. Meet us on the front line and often attend embassies. Burn. And you're here on 3CR. It's 8.30 at the moment, and we're about to go into an interview. So, uh, recently, you might not know, but BHP um, purchased a 6.1 stake in um, exploration company Solgold for about $35 million. And we're going to have a look at this recent trend or... or growing thing that Australia is having a bit of a mining grab in North Ecuador and uh, we have Anthony really from the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group to talk to us today about that. So good morning Anthony. Yeah, how are you? Very good, thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it's shaping up to be a good morning. Um, look Anthony, I was wondering, this mining jargon and that sort of um, environmental pressures, North Ecuador obviously away from Australia, I was wondering if you could help us contextualise this whole conversation by giving us a little bit of a history to, well, I suppose, mining within Ecuador and kind of why it's suddenly become such a thing and why it hasn't been such a thing for such a long time. Yeah, well, look, um, we reformed the, the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group a few months ago. We, there was a presentation down in Melbourne by a fellow called John C. And in the 1980s, the Australian government uh, helped fund a rainforest reserve in the cloud forests of Ecuador at a place called Los Cedros. And John was alarmed because in the last few, uh, year or so, um, they noticed at Los Cedros that there was um, exploration for, uh, for gold going on um, near and, and in some of the edges of the reserve. And so they did a bit of research and they were alarmed to find that um, a whole a swathe of land across Ecuador uh, was under, was under uh, a mining exploration concessions and then they did a little bit more digging and they found that um, most of those concessions are owned by Australian and Canadian companies and what's concerning in regards to Ecuador is Ecuador is one of the world's um, most biodiverse um, uh, 
uh, hotspots, and um, about 14% of the entire country has been basically uh, flogged off to these mining companies. Um, yeah, they expect um, mining in the country is going to expand by about 800% in the next few years. And like I said, 80% of the mining concessions have been purchased by Australian and Canadian companies, and 67% of all, percent of all mining concessions have been um, have been snapped up by a, a company that was uh, founded in Brisbane, a company called Solgold. Mm. And um, what's interesting about Solgold is that um, I did a bit of corporate research on them, and there was very few people in Australia even aware of, of, of who they were. But when we did a bit more digging, we found that, um, you know, if everyone's heard about the, the Adani mine in, in Queensland and and, um, uh, and, and, and and mining in the Galilee Basin, well, we'll, we'll guess who, 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 who discovered those deposits of coal. It was, these, it was individuals associated with, with soul gold. About uh, about 20 years ago, and Solgold's interest at that time was uh, was purchased by by none other than Clive Palmer in 2008. Um, the individuals behind Solgold were also behind the coal seam gas boom in, in in Queensland, which has caused you know a, a huge 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 damages to um, um, the environment in Queensland, and it uh, sparked off a lot of resistance across the country. And so what was interesting was, was, was this company that's flown under the radar uh, for so long as, as uh, we, we, we basically, uh, you know, provided information out there on them and then to find that they're involved with Ecuador was, was, was a double whammy. So we provide, uh, you know, made these fact sheets and et cetera and they're being circulated in, in, in Ecuador now. Um, the, the big issue in Ecuador is, is, is a lot of the land that, that has been taken over by, by, by these mining uh, leases is, is Indigenous people's land. Yeah. And, and the Indigenous people uh, in Ecuador have, have, um, have a fair bit of power under the constitution. And only a few months ago, there was actually a, a Chinese gold mine shut down in Ecuador after, after the, the, the judge ruled that the, um, there hadn't been proper... Uh, a consultation with the um, with, with the landowners. Yeah, I was ho- um, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I was I was hoping to definitely come back to that because I think it's a really fascinating uh, thing that within North Ecuador there actually is enshrined in the constitution uh, this this instituted uh, consultation with indigenous communities. And I was wondering how effective that was. Now um, we were discussing the other day that um, these have, laws have actually been lessened in recent developments, and that's why you're seeing such a mining grab. Have we been seeing that within, um, I suppose, the government? Well, what happened in in Ecuador? I mean, it's, it, it hasn't traditionally been a, a mining country, and mm. and one of the major reasons for that was that in back in two thousand and eight, uh, the president of the country put a a, mor- uh, a, um, a a memorandum on 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 mining exploration, which effe- effectively uh, shut down all, all, all foreign investment. Now, what happened was there was a new lo- mining law. That Established in June 2013, which opened up Ecuador to foreign investment, and um, that president's name was Rafael Acarora, and he was replaced in December 2017 by Lenin Marino, and um, he's announced that, there's no, that, that there'll be no new mining concessions, but um, 
you know, uh, the uh, the horse has already bolted. So, yeah, um, and it, this really has opened up the floodgate to a lot of Australian companies. I mean, uh, we were talking about Solgold, uh, there was Newcrest, there was a few other, I think you... Yes, yeah, well, well, Solgold are, um, are busy, there's there's a big development in, in the north of the country called Cascabel, which um, uh, Solgold are an exploration company, so, so what they do is... is is they do all the digging, and then if if, if they hit the jackpot in, in mineral terms, so to speak, then then the big companies uh, move in and and, and, and and purchase what Solgold have, have, have basically established. So Solgold in the north uh, have um, they've been in alliance with with Newcrest Mining, which which is the Melbourne-based uh, mining company, and also um, BHP have just. I've just I've just bought into Soul Gold in the next in 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 in, in the last week, um, but but also in, in in the southeast of the country there's a mine uh, called uh, Rio del Norte, which Newcrest um, pumped 250 million dollars into um, uh, early this year, and that mine is expected to um, begin operations in 2019, and that's on the Indigenous peoples. Land uh, the Shua people, and and they're under Im- immense pressure at the moment, not only from from this gold mine, but there's been uh, pretty big clashes just north of this area uh, with a Chinese company uh, called Mirador. There's, there was deaths and and kidnappings and, and 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 big protests. So these areas in the southeast of the country are near the Peru border and in the headwaters of the Amazon system. Um, so, you know, once these sort of companies uh, start moving into these areas, um, yeah, the more pristine uh, country is then put under pressure because um, new roads are put in, new infrastructure, and this push to develop these, these resources are, um, are, are, are increased. Uh, the other problem in, in Ecuador, which they've been fighting for years, has been the oil the oil companies. So um, there's been a lot of um, uh, oil exploration and and and, uh, and oil operations, which have, have uh, further um, disenfranchised um, the indigenous tribes of, uh, of of Ecuador. Hi, Anthony. This is Will here. Um, so Australia, it's it's hard not to think of the Australian state as a sort of really hungry beast that consumes all of the countries around us. We've got interests in. East Timorese oil and all over the island of Papua, whether it's West Papua or Papua New Guinea. Um, is Australia's interest in South, South America for, in terms of mining resources and oil exploration, is, is this new? Are we aware of any sort of previous moves in this way? Well, there's been, um, I mean, there's been, um, you know, as, as everyone would be aware, you know, BHP has been operating in places like, uh, like, uh, like Brazil, and you only have to look at what happened at, at, at the Samarco mine disaster in 2015. Um, so BHP has been operating in in in, in Brazil. Uh, they've been operating in 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 Chile, and there's been a lot of industrial disputes um, with BHP's operations in Chile. Uh, BHP have also been uh, under a lot of a controversy in Colombia um, at, at 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 a at a at a nickel mine in um, in Colombia. Um, so, yeah, these yeah, Australian it, interests, I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I guess we should sort of say that uh, although they started off in Australia, these, these companies are, I mean, BHP is now based in, based in London, 
so they've got Australian roots, but they're essentially uh, a global predators. So, um, and, and even Solgold, which is um, established in Brisbane, is is listed on the London and Toronto stock exchanges. So, you know, technically you could say they're Australian, but essentially they're global by nature. And uh, Anthony, just sorry to interrupt there, but. Uh uh, there was a report, and you may well be aware of it, that came out about Australian companies, mid-level companies, um, mining activities in uh, Africa. That came out um, a few years ago now. It was called Fatal Extraction, yeah, yeah. I, Australian Mining's Damaging Push into Africa. And uh, I guess one of the things this report brings out is that, you know, industrial safety, I mean, quite aside from environmental damage that isn't fixed up, that uh, industrial safety rules for the workers are ignored in Africa and the countries are so poor that um, they're not able to, uh, I mean, they, they want the money and so they're not, they're more supporting the mining companies. And I've also heard further that often, the people that are sent out to these countries by Australian government as ambassadors uh, are, have links to mining industry. So it's very hard. This is separate from the report, Fatal Extraction. But it's very hard for smaller countries to stand up for, for conditions for miners. But did you, were you aware of that report? Uh, I was aware. I did a bit of research on Newcrest, and they were mentioned in that, in that report. Um, they had a, um, <coughs> a big problem in one of their mines in the, on the Ivory Coast. Um, a place called Bonnie, Bonnie Crow mm -hmm. um, and Newcrest um, apparently to, uh, in that report you, uh, you, you just mentioned uh, Newcrest have been responsible for human rights abuses, um, loss of arable land, mm -hmm. uh, pollution of drinking water with cyanide and, and unsatisfactory compensation for relocated people but, yeah. but, but Newcrest have been up to no good in, in, in Papua New Guinea um, and they've got a massive um, mine on, on, on the cards up, up in Papua New Guinea, which, which um, we haven't really been able to put any, any pressure on because our focus has, has been Ecuador. And, yeah, you know, and, you know, as you kind of point out, just keeping, you know, keeping across all of that information and working out who's, which companies are connected with who and where the activity is taking place is a challenge in itself. So, you know, great work uh, in just keeping track of those things. But, and by the way, the report I mentioned was put out by the, um, I think, Center for Independent Journalism, uh, actually based in Washington. So it, it, they were, Putting, keeping an eye on things in Africa. And uh, it came about because one of the journalists actually, I think from New Zealand, had worked in uh, Australia. And then when they were visiting Africa, they noticed all these Australian companies. So that was a kind of interesting background. It's an old report now, but it's a very useful one. Yeah, the other interesting thing that, that, that we're looking at is who is actually investing in these oh, absolutely. In yeah. these mining operations. And, and one company that's um, it's been under some pressure. It's a New York-based investment company called BlackRock, and they've um, you know we did a little bit of research on them, and and we found that um, they're basically what's called the largest shadow bank in, in 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 the world, which means that they offer the same services as banks, but but they don't come under um, a banking regulation. And um, you know they've got up to six trillion dollars uh, of, of of assets tied up um, worldwide. So they're the largest asset manager in the world. Um, they own about 14% of, of Newcrest, and they own about uh, between five and 10% of BHP. So almost every every public 
publicly listed company in the world, New, uh, sorry, BlackRock are, um, are up to their teeth in it. And BlackRock also uh, provided the the financing um, for this uh, mine in the southeast of, of, of Ecuador, which I um, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, Fruta del Norte. So in in, in May 2017, um, that mine um, received a financial package of between 400 and 450 million bucks from from Blackstone to provide the uh, initial foundation funding to develop this, this gold mine. So uh, BlackRock have been under a bit of uh, consumer pressure in the US, um, particularly over their um, their role in in, in, in gun companies. Um, and they've also been um, uh, they've also been under pressure from uh, from Friends of the Earth International and a few other organisations over their investments in oil palm in um, in the Pacific. So if people haven't heard about BlackRock, um, that was a whole other side to this that uh, that I wasn't really aware of. But but you know they've got their fingers in almost every big company around the world and. Um, yeah, if you look up our website, rainforestactiongroup.org, you'll, you'll find um, some, some good background information on BlackRock, Newcrest, and also Solgold. Yeah, just a, just a quick question, though. So we're talking about very ma- massive, multi-billion dollar companies with mm. tentacles all over the world, trailing oil and coal gas sort of mines all over the place. Uh, what kind of action can an organisation like Melbourne Rainforest Action Group take um, against these companies and how can people get involved? I know you've mentioned your website. Yeah, well, look, we're just at, at, at this stage, we're just basically, um, we wanted to know who we were dealing with, so we spent the last few months doing some pretty good good research. Uh, we meet every every second week, um, but uh, basically what we're trying to do at the moment, we think that the real power in Ecuador lies with Indigenous people. So what we're trying to do is, 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 is raise funding and awareness of, 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 of the struggles of, 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 of the Indigenous people in, in that country and um, also trying to um, crowdfund to support their legal battles um, that, 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 that they're facing. And, 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 you know, and the, the news that, that, that a gold mine in Ecuador was actually shut down because of um, um, you know, legal challenges from Indigenous tribes there uh, is, um, is encouraging. Um, we're also uh, trying to organise more attention um, so that people are aware of what those mining companies are doing and where they are. And there's a big um, international mining conference to be held in Melbourne um, between the 29th of October and the 1st of November, IMARC. So we're trying to uh, get some interest in, in anyone wanting to raise a bit of, um, a, a bit of controversy with with that big mining conference. So all, all the head honchos of, uh, of these major mining companies will be there. But at the moment, um, aside from that, we're just trying to get people's awareness raised and, you know, and hopefully we can cross-pollinate with other groups and, and get new ideas from, from from those groups as well. Yeah, no, thank you, Anthony, so much for joining us today. I think we've, um, unfortunately, we've run out of time to talk about the, uh, the environmental, uh, the cultural and political kind of ramifications of mining in Ecuador, though. It sounds definitely like we'll be able to hear it in the upcoming forums. And definitely, if you're interested, um, for listeners, you can always check them out online at the Melbourne Action Rainforest Group. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for joining us today, Anthony. It was... No worries. Thanks very much. Yeah, great talking to you. No worries. Thanks. 
We're now going to go into a song, uh, John Butler Trio, on the kind of topic of this. It's called Company Sin. Hope you enjoy. And that was John Butler with his company, Sin. We thought rather apt for a conversation about big companies and mining. Um, We're now going to go into a segment called Yesterday's News. So, coming up. Here is the news. So, coming up to 7.51, uh, we look at yesterday's news, looking at stories that have had their moment in the media spotlight, however, have kind of faded from that media spotlight, but are far from over, so still going on. And this week, we're kind of looking at Pussy Riot, uh, and Pussy Riot's recent imprisonment within uh, Russian jails in late July. So... For all those who don't know, uh, Pussy Riot is a feminist protest punk rock group, which is a bit of a mouthful, uh, founded by women in Moscow. Starting back in 2011, they have a group membership of about 11 women and they are recognisable through their knitted balaclavas and acid wash kind of um, uniform. They're also deeply critical of the Russian state and the Orthodox Church and their control they have in the country. And they promote feminism, LGBTQIA rights and kind of just freedom of expression. So kind of seeing or connotating Putin as the dictator. So you've probably heard their name from their 2012 performance inside the Cathedral of Christ the Saviour. And their previous imprisonment actually uh, being released back in 2013. But what you might not have heard about is their recent um, kind of big controversy, which was interrupting a World Cup this year, um, World Cup match between France and Croatia in July. And it was a demonstration where they members basically four members dressed up as Russian police and kind of led an on-field protest where they marked the 11th anniversary of the death of a Russian dissident artist and poet, Dmitry Pigroy, who wrote um, of the heavenly policeman, kind of like this idolised concept. And the group kind of contrasts this, this poetic kind of narrative with the reality of police brutality and suppression in Russia. Anyway, um, they, were, they had a list of demands saying, you know, let all political prisoners free, uh, to not imprison for likes, to stop illegal arrests and rallies. And instead, they were sentenced to 15 days in jail on July the 17th, uh, 2018. So they were sentenced to 15 days of jail uh, due to disruption and kind of administrative pardon, administrative arrest and kind of banned from attending sports events for three years. However, what we found is on the Monday of August that they were due to set free, those 15 days were up, um, they were released and then wound straight back up in jail with no explanation. And initially it appears that there were no charges. Uh, the police station said that there was an order to keep them in overnight, however, um, and that the procedures would take place in the morning. However, that was back in August and we are now hitting September. We haven't really heard much from the Russian uh, government about this, and it just shows you there's a topic going on right under our nose that the media is just not covering. 
this yeah, time. I, I so admire Pussy Riot. I mean, there, it wouldn't be any fun you know, <laughs> in a Russian jail, to say the least. Yeah. And I have been at a, a conference, a, a drug and alcohol conference, where there were people who were talking about being jailed and, and what it was like there, and women in particular. So, yeah, pretty tough stuff. And still... They persist and they protest. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, no. Um, so members of Veronica, Olga, Olga and Peter were jailed. And I think the thing to remember is these four of the 11 were jailed, but the band is still producing music and it's still using its voice and platform. I mean, if you go to YouTube, there's, um, I think, a recent song which was Straight Out of Vagina, ripping off Straight Out of Compton. <laughs> and that's their new protest piece. And it's a pretty, pretty amazing video, I have to admit. Right. So um, in kind of this this frightening squashing of public freedoms, we're actually going to play a song of Pussy Riots um, and kind of, yeah, fight against this disregard for international law and, you know, the abuse of these individuals um, and play this song that Pussy Riot published in 2015 called I Can't Breathe. And this song is especially important. The story behind it is it's in memory of the death of a protester, Eric Garner, in 2014. And just for those listening, the story does contain references to graphic violence, police violence, uh, murder, and very distressing themes. But basically, the story behind it is that Eric Garner was killed on the 17th of July in 2014 after a New York City police officer put him in a chokehold for 15 to 19 seconds, which is a move that is prohibited by police policy. Eric Garner had been approached on suspicion of selling cigarettes without text stamps, and after telling the police that he wasn't selling these cigarettes... The officers attempted to arrest Garner, and facing a short struggle, he was put in the chokehold that killed him. Eric Garner repeated throughout the choke, I can't breathe, almost 11 times before the NYPD turned him on his side to ease his breathing, and he remained there for seven minutes until medical assistants arrived, who decided it wasn't appropriate to conduct CPR because they thought he was still breathing. However, by this time, Garner had died, um, and he was only pronounced dead an hour later when taken to hospital. The autopsy found showed that he did die from compression of neck and chest, and it was ruled a homicide. However, by December the 3rd, uh, the Richmond County Jail had decided not to indict the officer responsible, saying that it wasn't an intentional criminal death, it was just one caused by his actions. And this sparked over 50 demonstrations around police brutality in December alone throughout America. And Pussy Riot uh, pays homage to Eric Gardner and the police brutality that he was going through, and I suppose the police brutality that they're going through, they very much extended his words, I can't breathe, to kind of, um, to stand for, for anyone in the world, Pussy Riot and many others, who feel they can't breathe because authorities act without impunity and feel, sorry, with impunity and feel invincible and above the law and use this power to humiliate, intimidate, hurt, kill and oppress individuals. And that, uh, that's words from the band themselves. So, here is a song. Uh, just a reminder again, this does contain very, very definitely some very serious themes um, and does talk about death and grief and murder and all those sorts of stuff. So if you're not interested, uh, tune back in at 8 o'clock when we're coming up with an interview. And that was uh, Pussy Riot's I Can't Breathe with the final words of uh, protester Eric Gardner in there, just finishing off the song. Yes, and uh, just finishing off this segment on yesterday's news. And um, coming up next, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Dennis Muller, who's a research fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism uh, at the University of Melbourne. And I think he's on the line now. Dennis, are you there? 
I am indeed, Judith. Well, listen, you know what? It's kind of hard to follow Pussy Riot, I think. So, <laughs> great, great to have you on the show this morning. And, uh, you know, we'll be looking forward to what you have to say about quality journalism. Um, in July, you published an article in The Conversation. On the, yeah. And I say proposed, so I'll be, have, I'll be wanting to hear from you whether it is proposed or whether it's actually going to head the nine Fairfax merger. And you yeah. described it as a disaster for quality media. So, yeah. um, first of all, welcome back, Dennis, to Wednesday Breakfast. Thank Always you, great to have you here. And so, why is the Nine Fairfax merger a disaster for quality media? Well, because it's firstly it's a takeover. It's not a merger, really. I mean, Nine have taken over Fairfax. Fairfax are one of the few providers of really quality journalism in Australia and they've got the very best investigative journalism unit we've ever seen, the one, the one of the age that's led by um, Nick McKenzie and Richard Baker and Nine by contrast is a tabloid journalism outfit I mean it's, uh, its whole editorial culture is, um, is aimed at um, obviously increasing audience share of ratings uh, and this it has always been a tension in in journalism. Uh, the really the, the serious, the quality media have tended not to rely just on sheer numbers, sheer force of circulation, or um, or force of ratings. Uh, quality media has relied largely on subscriptions and advertising, and its audiences have been much smaller. So, what we've got a situation now where a quality media outfit has been taken over by a tabloid media outfit and you'd have to say that because of the fact it is a takeover and because the nine chief executive is the chief executive of the whole thing that probably it will be the it will be the tabloid journalism culture that in the end prevails that's the disaster as i said Yes, and uh, um, isn't it headed up, I mean, I'm just uh, thinking of, of what involvement uh, the Liberal Party may have, if any. Well, we don't know, but what we do know for a fact is that the chairman of the joint operation is Peter Costello, who of course was the federal treasurer in the John Howard government for a long time, and still active in politics. Now, uh, against that we have to say that the the new owners, uh, the what's called uh, Nine, uh, well, it's just called Nine now, but Nine Entertainment was the the company that took over Fairfax. Uh, they have said they will sign the Charter of Editorial Independence. Now that's actually been quite an important document. I was at the Age when that charter was created. It was created when the Age was up for sale, along with the rest of Fairfax, after the um, National Australia Bank had put the company up. Uh, for sale after the disastrous privatisation attempt by young Warwick Fairfax. And uh, we were really worried at that time that a, a bloke called Robert Maxwell would get hold of the paper. Now, uh, those of us with long memories will recall that Robert Maxwell was a crook. He, <laughs> he owned newspapers in England. Um, he stole from his um, employer's superannuation fund. He was, he was just a crook. He finished up dead and the Bay of Biscay fell off his yacht or something. Uh, and so he never got his hand on the, on the paper. But the legacy was that uh, this charter of editorial independence uh, was drawn up in order to try to 
um, put some constraints on someone like Robert Maxwell and the proprietors who bought the, the, the paper, um, including a guy called Conrad Black, uh, they actually signed on to that charter and every successive proprietor that the, company, that the newspapers have had has also done so and nine have said that they have signed on to it too and what that charter does is it guarantees the freedom of the journalists to report on on issues and topics even when that might not be in the financial interests of the owners that's that's what editorial independence means it means that if i'm working for the age and the and the a big advertiser comes along and says i want a story done on that then i as the editor can say no We're not going to do a story now because it isn't a story. So are you taking some comfort in the fact that Nine has announced it will sign that uh, charter of editorial independence? Do you think that will will carry some weight? Oh, yeah, I I do. I do take some heart from that, yes. Um, It doesn't, of course, affect the choice of story that you cover. It doesn't go to the issue of quality. But what editorial independence does do is say, look, if this is really a story, if, if this has got... Um, all the qualities of news value that we regard as, uh, as amounting to a story, then we will pursue this story even if Peter Costello doesn't like it or even if it's not in the interest of a big Channel 9 advertiser. That's what the charter means. But whether, in the end, the, the um, editorial priorities will be to go after really hard stories that involve a lot of money, um, a lot of investment by, of, of time and talent, or whether they just want to continue to do what they do at the moment, which is basically a, a sort of mixture of police round stories and consumer rorts, uh, we just don't know yet. Yes, and so it it could be just a, not a, just a kind of there in letter, but not actually observed in practice, and and really we need yeah, to see. Well, it could be, but I mean, I think that it is important that that Nine have signed that that charter because it does give the journalists and and the, particularly the editorial executives. Um, a, a degree of protection and something, some sort of leverage in the organisation because in all media companies at different times, the commercial side of the business try to put pressure on uh, on, on the editorial side. I mean, it, it happened at Fairfax. You know, the advertising people would come down and say, hey, um, would you like to cover this uh, fashion parade down at David Jones? And as chief of staff of the Herald, I would just say no. I do not wish to cover that fashion parade down at David Jones, and the advertising guys would go away. Um, Well, you would have had to buy a whole new outfit. You would have had to dress for the occasion. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me, Judith, I've got bronchitis. I do apologize. Oh, no, no, not at all. But I am wondering, I understand the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC, has kicked off an informal review of the merger. And yeah. submissions close September 7th. Uh, the decision yeah. is due on November 7th. Could it prevent the merger from going ahead? It could. Uh, but I, and it's very interesting, I, the, the ACCC are doing really good work in this whole area of looking at the market for news. So it's not just the sort of the commercial market, not just the advertising market they're looking at, but they're looking at the market in news. So they're looking, to put it another way, they're looking at diversity. That's a very big uh, step for the ACCC. It's well outside their sort of economic remit, and it's it's bold and it's typical of Rod Sims, the chairman of the ACCC, that he's doing it, and I think it's an excellent thing. Um, 
So they may say this will lead to um, a, a decrease in diversity uh, of news or in the market for news, which is how they put it, and therefore uh, it shouldn't go ahead. But uh, the, the, the problem for that argument is, well, you know, Fairfax is in a, in a pretty dire financial position. And what would be the alternative? Uh, so that, that would be the question that the ACCC would have to satisfy the government about. If, if the government received a report from the ACCC saying, saying this, this shouldn't go ahead, then the ACCC would have to come up with an answer to that question. If it doesn't go ahead and Fairfax implodes, what then? Yeah, so we still still lose that uh, that uh, tradition of investigative journalism. That well, we we, we might or we mightn't, you know. Yeah. Because um, I think an alternative would be that the paper, the companies be broken up, the the, the company be broken up, and that the big mastheads, the Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, and the Financial Review, would be sold off to separate owners. That would be quite good, I think, um, because firstly, they're not very expensive. Right. Their value has been so diminished that uh, a valuation that was done of the company by um, by a hedge fund uh, about 12 months ago found that the total value, market value of all three together, was 17.8 million. That's about what 5.6 million dollars each. Yes, that's, yes. that's lunch money for people. Yes, I was going to say account. yes. Yeah. So. I mean, it's perfectly possible that if the company were broken up, uh, then in Melbourne, say, um, you know, an Eric Beecher or somebody like that um, might might easily uh, purchase the masthead. And, um, and, and is that again. kind of a shout-out to Eric Beecher <laughs> to think about that? Well, I mean, an awful lot, awful lot of worse outcomes. Uh, you know, Eric's done a lot of good work. Uh, yes. in, I mean, he started Crikey, and he runs Tex Media yeah. and so on. Um, and similarly, you could see a similar scenario playing out in, in Sydney with the SMH and the Fin Review. So uh, there are alternatives, but they'd be pretty chancy. And I think that the ACCC would be pretty reluctant to go down so speculative a route as that. So I think in the end, uh, they probably will approve it. I see. And I'm just thinking about the signing of the Charter of Editorial Independence. And I know that wasn't the case when you wrote your article in the conversation. This has happened no. since. Do you think this is uh, some sort of um, a message to the Australian consumer competition from the, the ACCC that, you know, we will uh, follow editorial independence? Do you think it's part of getting the kind of outcome they want from that review? Well, I think that may have been part of it. Yes, Um but the, the fact is they did sign it pretty quickly, as it turned out. I wrote that piece um, more or less on the day that the takeover was announced, and, and they, yeah. had, they had given an assurance on the charter within about 24 hours. So mm-hmm. um, they were pretty quick off the mark. Okay. And I, I, you know, without, without, um, I don't like to impugn people's motives without knowing more than I do at the moment. Sure. No, that's fine. And I guess one useful thing to think about is that it, what, there was a change of legislation that went through Parliament last year that actually made this merger or takeover possible. Is that correct? That's correct, yes, in September last year. Yes. Um, and what it did was that it overturned the changes to media ownership laws that had been introduced in 1987 by Paul Keating, where he'd separated uh, ownership of 
print from ownership of television. Right. His, his laws said that if you own uh, a newspaper, you can't own a market, uh, television in the same market. And, and, and if you own a TV channel, you can't own a newspaper in the same market. And so who's that, in, was, that was all overturned. And so whose interests were served by this change in the law? Well, uh, basically, um, the, the the person pushing it hardest was Rupert Murdoch because he wanted into um, in the, into commercial television, of course, um, whereas he'd been prevented because he owns newspapers in all the major capital cities. So it, he is the primary beneficiary, but obviously um, the, uh, the the Channel Nine company is a, is a secondary one because they've now. Managed to seize the, um, you know, the most important newspaper company, the most independent uh, and the best newspaper company in the country. So, uh, it's uh, Channel Nine are the most um, the most immediate beneficiaries, but I think in the long run, uh, it'll turn out that um, probably Rupert Murdoch will be the main one. And if we look at Rupert Murdoch's alliance with the Liberal, at least extreme right of the Liberal Party. I would say that, well, I would suggest that perhaps uh, the extreme right, the Liberal Party, has benefited from this. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And they will benefit um, because now uh, Sky, which at the moment is confined to um, to cable television, uh, is about to go into free-to-air television in the regions oh, through yes. an alliance with the Wynn Network, um, yes. Which public, which broadcasts into um, New South Wales and Victoria, uh, and so this will. This is a very big break for for Murdoch, because Sky's audience on pay TV is very small. Only about twenty eight to twenty nine percent of households in Australia have pay TV, and of those, only a small minority of viewers look at the Sky service. Um, and so this is going to be a huge boon to to Sky because it now gets to be free to air in the regional areas of the two biggest states. So, so, so what are uh, the implications for for democracy and uh, and the role of the media as kind of a fourth estate if Rupert Murdoch is getting even more control? Well, those I think the implications are negative because we've seen how in the United States. Uh, Murdoch has used Fox News, which is a is the kind of uh, parent of Sky News, really, uh, has become a very powerful player in American politics. Now, uh, Fox News in the United States has got an enormous penetration of households, um, and it's it's the same sort of recipe as Sky News. Uh, except that it's even more extreme. If you watch Sky News, uh, sorry, if you watch Fox News for a week, as I once had to do for research purposes, um, uh, people are rolling their eyes in sympathy here. Well, <laughs> you come away with a very see. skewed view of the world. You know, you you come yeah. away with a, a, a very weird view of the world, and it's all couched in a sort of a screaming madness. So. So this is this screaming madness may now come to rural Australia. I think so. Yeah, I think. Well, if you see, if you look at Sky After Dark at the moment, it's a screaming madhouse. In in the daytime, it's good. They have a very good um, sort of rolling news service all day. But once night falls, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde operation. <laughs> 
I mean, it really is. They have the they have the wildest people. Uh, they have neo Nazis and all sorts of of, oh of maddies. I remember oh, I remember that. hearing an interview with someone who worked for I think News of the World and and saying what fun it was because they could just sit around and pick at the most bizarre extreme story that had kind of come through from someone out in I don't know Poughkeepsie or so, somewhere. Yeah, oh this is well, in the US. absolutely. I mean, it was actually yeah. just called Screws of the World because of, of its. Um, <laughs> of its concentration on people's sex lives. Um, but, but the, um, I mean, the Murdoch press, particularly in England, uh, has a, you know, a frightful reputation for, um, not only for intrusions and the like, but also, of course, for phone hacking and... Yes, uh, I, I think I told you... And all sorts of things, you know. I think I told you, Dennis, that when I was in Canada recently, I said, they asked about the government, I said, yes, we have a terrible prime minister, and someone commented, who, Rupert Murdoch? And it was a pretty savvy person. I mean, he certainly knew Rupert wasn't really the prime minister about a comment on our media ownership laws, which are so narrow. Now, I mean, it's a fascinating topic, and I think... um, you know, we could go on for a long time, but I do want to touch briefly on the new book that you were in New Zealand launching last year, last week, rather, when I called yeah. in, in the name of security is the title, Secrecy, Surveillance and Journalism. So we think right. we could just switch for a moment into a little bit about the book and like, what's the premise of the book? Well, the, the book uh, looks not just at Australia, but it looks at um, it looks sort of globally at America, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, India, and uh, Brazil, and it looks at the um, the balance between national security laws and freedom of speech. And what we find uh, is that uh, ever since 9/11, and we've just come past the end of the what is it the um, the something anniversary of 9/11, isn't it? Um, yes. The eighth, the the seventeenth. Um, that ever since then, uh, in all of these countries, but particularly in uh, Australia, New Zealand, America, Canada and the UK, especially in those countries, um, there's been an enormous number of national security and anti-terrorism laws passed. In Australia, it's 64, 64 separate pieces of legislation. And all of them, certainly in the Australian case, all of them put limitations on journalism, on free speech, on what we're allowed to know. There are some very oppressive... Australia's got the worst, the most oppressive regime of laws. There's a, a law in, in... or there's a series of laws that just prevent Australian journalists reporting on anything that the um, security agencies are doing, and they allow for people to be held in secret, detained in secret, and you can't write about it even after that uh, detention is over. And, so, and there's another provision that says uh, that uh, even if you write about a, a um, by accident about a security operation without even knowing that it's a security operation, then uh, you can be subject to imprisonment. So the, the interaction of these pieces of legislation is, um, is really very oppressive. And, of course, alone among those five countries... Australia has no constitutional guarantee of free speech. That's right. No Bill uh, of Rights here. No, we have no Bill of Rights. Yes. Now, um, uh, Britain and New Zealand don't have a Bill of Rights uh, either, but they've, they've, they have been Britain through the European Union and New, and New Zealand through a special piece of legislation have created um, a, a, effectively a Bill of Rights. 
so uh, it's not as entrenched as in the United States, but there are protections in those other countries that Australia just doesn't have. So here in this country, uh, we've had a uh, an enormous bias towards national security at the expense of freedom of speech and investigative journalism, and that's what this book's about. Oh, great. And I know it's early days, but what kind of response have you had so far? Well, it's only just out. We launched it in New Zealand on uh, last uh, Friday because there was, a, there was a conference in Auckland on exactly this topic, on national security and, and journalism. So I we see. launched it on Friday. It was very well received. It was launched by a guy called Nicky Hager, who's a very uh, distinguished New Zealand investigative journalist and along with a guy called John Stevenson has written uh, a book called Hit and Run about the activities of the New Zealand Defence Forces in Afghanistan. Um, Nikki Hager... Uh, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, Dennis. I think yeah. we're, we're going to um, run out of time no, shortly. But right. um, uh, if people are wanting to get this book, I know we, you did tell me it's an academic book. It's one of the more expensive yeah. ones. I yeah. suppose if you are a university student, ask your university library to buy it. Well, um, that's, that would be the thing to do. If you wanted to inquire directly, go to Anthem Press. Go to the website of Anthem Press. They, that's the way to get hold of it. But, yeah, uh, the thing, we're, we're trying to get it into the university libraries because it's $152, um, and that's uh, that's sort of university textbook price, not, not yes. the sort of price that you'd pay. Although yourself. I think you can get it on Kindle. For a mere fifty, I'm sure you can get it on Kindle for a reduced <laughs> yeah, price. Anyway, yeah. I, I'm I'm really interested in in. I'll probably do the Kindle if I'm feeling wealthy. Yeah. But uh, definitely, it's a book that should be in university libraries. So, Dennis, thank you so much for coming on this morning, and uh, you know, wonderful information for us around, you know, what's happening with journalism with regard to your book, but also with uh, the merger, I, I mean, or takeover. So I think it's something to keep our eye on because from what you're saying, it's still open and it'll be interesting to see what the decision is on November the 7th by the ACCC. It, it sure will. Yeah. Dennis, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Judith. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And the revolution will be live right here on 3CR Community Radio, even though it might not be televised. (laughs) And that was Gil Scott Heron. Um, and, uh, of course, one of the very early uh, founders of of rap and uh, hip-hop. Now... uh Speaking of things that haven't been receiving a lot of um, media coverage, things that will, have not been televised, there hasn't been a lot of news to bring on the um, on the trial of Witness K and Witness K's lawyer Bernard Colleri, uh, except for today. Today there's um, going to be a protest in a couple of minutes' time held outside the ACT Magistrates Court, uh, where it's expected that both Witness K and Bernard Colleri will be um, tried in open court at the ACT Magistrates Court for conspiring to breach intelligence laws. These are the laws that um, Dennis Muller just um, referenced a little earlier against um, the publication of anything to do with uh, intelligence operations, um, in this case by ASIO. Uh, Back in 2004, Witness K um, revealed that um, ASIO had been bugging the government offices of Timor-Leste during... um, uh, discussions this between Australia, absolutely outrageous. Yeah. Australia and Timor Leste were negotiating on um, access to oil on the border between Timor Leste. Well, actually, slightly over the border towards Timor Leste and Australia. And so, um, 
what the reason why I bring this up is that it's going to be an open court at 4.15 this afternoon, so let's just keep an eye on that. Yeah, um, otherwise, thank you so much for joining us on Wednesday Breakfast. We've had a great time with some good guests. Yeah, we have. A big thank you to, to Dennis Muller for all of the time that he gave us this morning mm. and, and his insights. I mm. mean, such experience both within the media himself and, and then within academia. And earlier in the day, we spoke to Anthony Annis from Melbourne Rainforest Action Group about mining developments in Ecuador and, its social, uh, and uh, the, the context of Australian mining across the world. Yeah. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.